Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. Cool. I've got Donna on the line. And so, Donna, how did you first find out about us? Um, actually, through your Facebook Live. Oh, okay. All right. And were you in a specific group or? No, actually, it came across and I took a minute and listened to it. And um, that's, how I, that's how I found out about you. Nice. Um, so you are in what, the Kansas City market? I am, yes. Okay, that's definitely an interesting market to be in. And you mentioned to me, we were just kind of chatting on Facebook, uh, you know, before we jumped on this call, you've done some wholesale deals already? Yes. Okay. What type of stuff have you, is it been exclusively wholesale or have you done any fix and flip so far? No, it's been exclusively wholesale, but I definitely want to go into the fix and flip um, as I'm wanting to really grow, um, grow passive income, grow portfolio, um, and maybe have something to, to pass on to my kids or something that my kids could be involved with someday. Perfect. Um, and so how many wholesale deals have you done so far? Two. Two. Okay. And what period of time was that over? Since last October. Nice. Okay. How did you find those deals? Because that's always, whenever I talk to anybody, that is the number one most important thing when you're starting out. Um, did you find these deals online or are you out marketing for sellers? What are you doing to get face-to-face with these people? Um, I have done bandit signs and I've done some mailers. Okay. How did the banding signs work out for you? Um, well, the first one I got was last, um, about last October, uh, October, November, and it was from a bandit sign and it was very quick. Um, after I'd first put my bandit signs out, I have bandit signs out now and I'm not really getting any calls off of them so far this spring. Okay. How many hours a week are you spending putting up bandit signs? Um, I would say probably an average of about five to seven Five to seven hours per week? Yeah. Okay. Let me tell you why I don't like banding signs as, as a marketing method. Um, the first thing about banding signs, and it's different in every geographic market, so keep this in mind, but um, in the Boston market especially, the minute that you put a banding sign up, it gets taken down. So in your market, how long is it typically between the time where you put up a banding sign and it gets ripped down? You know, it really varies, but it's going to be a lot. And it's something, as you said, that you're not liking about it. It's something I'm really feeling at the moment that I don't like neither because you're dealing with lawns being cut all the time. So no matter where you place these signs at, even if they aren't taken down by the city, they're taken down by the mowers. So, I mean, I'm guessing the average length, if you're lucky, they're going to stay up for a couple of weeks and then they take them down and you just lose them. And I, I think about, I think they're about three bucks a sign. So, yeah. um, you know, it's not cheap. So every time, you know, you always go back and then it's gone. It's like, well, you know, there it's gone. So I am not, yeah. and I have not seen calls from Bandit Signs for some reason this, this spring so far or this summer. Yeah. Uh, I, and I don't really know why I, I know everywhere the market is very strong, but, um, 
I've done some mailers. I've got some appointments set for this week. Um, just from the mailers, I pretty much am doing honestly handwritten mailers from my house. So, so the other thing about banding signs that's really tough is <clears throat> the last time that you were say at a stop sign that or a red light where you could have potentially noticed a banding sign. Where were your eyes? Where were you looking? You specifically at a red light. Where do you look? You watch ahead of you. Oh, I, mean, I don't know. Are you sure you're not looking at your phone? Uh, okay. Well, possibly. Yeah. I, very I true. Say, very possible. I, I would say that 99% of the people, even if they're yeah. outside, even if you're at a bus stop where there's a bandit sign literally right in front of you, odds are you may still not make eye contact with that bandit sign because of the fact that you have this device in front of you that has endless possibilities for entertainment. And so I'm not saying that every single person, you know, does this, but the majority of people, and that's why a lot of outdoor media right now is not good because getting eyeballs on, you know, your marketing piece. So you have, you have two really big negative things with the bandit signs. You have the fact that you're putting them up and then they're getting taken down. But then when they're up, they're not even being seen as much as you want them to. Right. And then the the last thing that I'm going to touch on just on banding signs and why I'm not a big fan of them is it's really hard to scale. Um, So there's only so many kind of, you know, corners that you can put them on. And typically the people who are doing banding signs are the actual investors. And so, you know, you're spending six, seven, eight hours a week putting up banding signs and you're not getting the results that you that you really need. So I would definitely. um strongly suggest that you not do bandic signs. Mailers are a different animal. So when we talk about what really works today for real estate investing, there's only three really big things um, that work really well. One of them is mailers, one of them is cold calling, and one of them is internet marketing. And so everything else fits into a bucket of it could work, it works once in a great while, um, but it's going to be more expensive and it's not going to get you the results that you need. So now let's talk a little bit about mailers because that's what you've already started to do. How are you coming up with the list of people that you're actually going to mail? Uh, I went through list source to get the, get the names and, and the addresses and such and, and do a certain search criteria. Okay. What is the criteria that you're using in order to determine who you're going to mail? Um, single family, mm-hmm. um, uh, 1960s or newer. Um, I'm doing three bedrooms. Uh, three bedrooms. Uh, I can't remember on the most recent list if it was an absentee owners mm-hmm. and possibly over 55 with high equity. Okay. So you hit on a couple of the, the most important ones. Um, definitely you need high equity. So in this market, if somebody somebody doesn't have high equity, then you have no shot of even buying that property. Mm-hmm. So as of 2017, short sales are kind of not really what's working right now. And even if you do get a short sale, it's very difficult to get a bank to actually approve a number that you need to buy it at. Yeah. So short sales are out. And then people with a small amount of equity. So if your property is worth 250 and you owe 220, 
um, you're not going to sell it to an investor anyways, because you're not in a position, you're in a position where you can make money if you sell and you're not going to take a loss if you do have some equity. So you definitely need high equity. Um, the age demographic is definitely huge. Um, some, you know, people under the age of 45, very, very rarely, um, will sell to, to investors. So you've got that down. Um, you've got, the single family part of it, obviously, is just their target. Why are you going 1960 plus? Like, what what makes you not want a property older than that? Mm, I think, uh, well, I had talked to several cash buyers in the area, and they're looking for, that's kind of what they would rather, uh, mm. the 1960s, 1970s plus. Okay. So, do you filter out people that have bought their property in the last 10 years? Um, I want them to have at least owned it 10 plus years. Okay. And you use that as a filter? Yes. Okay. So it sounds like to me that you've got your filter set up. You probably got the right list. There are a few other things that I would do within that list, but it's going to take a little bit more time, efforting energy. And I don't think it's going to be worth it for you out of the gate like you want to remove all real estate agents from that list and you can do a scrub against the list for real estate agents. But again, I wouldn't really worry too much about that on day one. The other thing I want to ask is, are you doing anything to look at the values of the property? Because just in general, um, you know, higher end areas tend to not sell to investors. So are you, are you specifically targeting like uh, any specific areas and, and how are you targeting those? Um, I have done some research and narrowed down probably like my top 10 zip codes codes that are in, in the average price range of the area for Kansas city and um, targeted those kind of zip codes um, so that you are staying away from more of the harder areas uh, such, such as there's just, you could go in and buy a house maybe for $3,000, but you've got $30,000 of repairs and it's only going to sell for 50. So, um, but mm -hmm. I'm not, I stay away from that. I'm trying to stay around the average of uh, the 120s is, is our average price in the area. So that's how I'm trying to do it with the top zip codes. Okay. And how many mailers are you sending out when you are mailing? Right now, I'm doing about, I would say, around 200 a week, but I'm actually doing them handwritten um, from the house. Like, I'm not using a service. Okay. And how are you getting postage on them? I, I buy the postage and I put them on. What are you paying for postage? Mm, well, I don't know. I think it's 42 cents or something. Okay, so this is one of the first things that you definitely want to change is you want to get a, a bulk meter um, because paying 50 cents a letter is, is definitely going to be far too expensive, especially when you start getting into bigger, you know, bigger volume. Um, what you're paying right now to send out a letter is actually what it would cost if you just hired a service to do it. So you're okay. kind of you're kind of doing all this work really for no reason because um, you're not using this bulk, this bulk meter. And the way that we do it is, so you have to apply for a permit at your local post office and, um, you'll sign up. It costs, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks a year to get, to send out in bulk. And there's just rules on how to send out bulk mail that you need to follow that nothing, you know, spectacular. You just have to, you know, send, give the post office a certain order, alphabetical order by city. 
Um, so it's really simple to do. Um, and so you'll get that meter that allows you to do bulk. And then what you can do so that it doesn't look like bulk mail is we buy these, they sell these little 10 cent stamps that um, you can put over kind of the, the bulk postage meter so that nobody would ever know that it was actually bulk mail. So that's something I would do right away because you're going to save on average probably about 20 to 25 cents per letter. And so right off the bat okay. right there, you're probably going to be able to double the amount that you're sending out. Um, what amount did you okay. say? What amount did you say you were sending out um, again per week? About probably around two, two, 200 to 250. Okay. 200 to 250. And how many responses are you getting? Um, I have gotten some good responses. I've just started this probably about the last month. Okay. And um, um, this week I've actually got uh, four appointments set. Four appointments set for how much have you spent? Oh, gosh. How much have I spent? Um, Roughly. I mean, we don't need exact numbers. I'm just trying to get it. Uh, big sense on spent it. probably, let's just say, $1,000. Okay, four appointments for $1,000. So you are very close to average on that. So I don't really see too much of an issue there other than the fact that you can get these on bulk, which is going to cut down your cost. Yeah. So let's say that you could get six for 1000 You know, Instead of being at $250 a lead, you're going to be at $150 a lead. So the biggest thing to kind of understand is that the cost per lead is hugely important in this business. Um, and the more appointments that you go on, the more likely you are to do a deal. So yeah. let's forget about the bandit signs. Um, how did you get your other wholesale deal? Um, it was a mailer. Okay. So you've kind of, you've kind of figured out that, I mean, I can tell you that for sure, every market across the country mailers work. Mailers are actually my least favorite form of marketing that works in this market. And the reason for that is because it's the highest cost per lead. So the other two uh, systems that I talked about, the cold calling and the internet marketing, they will get you a lower cost per lead. And right now, that's really the most important thing that you want to focus on. But even if you just stuck with mailing and did nothing else, you could be very successful at just mailing. So I think your list was good. We need to get your, your costs per, per mailer lower. Um, the fact that you're handwriting them, I don't like that as a long-term strategy because you're using a lot of your own time. Um, you can actually print mailers that will look handwritten. They'll look 100% handwritten. Um, and there's, there's a way to do it. You would actually handwrite one of them and then there, there's a way to actually print them so that they look exactly the same. And me or you or anyone who's opening the letter would never be able to notice the difference. Um, so, so the inside of the letter could be automated. The outside of the letter, um, if you are going to handwrite anything, that would be the part where I would recommend handwriting. Because the biggest thing when it comes to a mailer is getting someone to actually open it. Yeah. So your open rate is the most important thing. Um, there are you, are you, how are you sending them? Are you sending postcards or physical letters? I'm sending postcards. Okay. So, um, so you've got, and, and are you doing postcards because it's a little bit cheaper? Yes. And it doesn't actually physically have to be opened. I um, yep. have had the front part of my, the postcard, it has my logo and, you know, my name and, um, 
phone number and stuff. And then the back is the handwritten part. Okay. So I think that'll work. The letters work as well. Um, there, I don't really have a, a big kind of, you know, opinion on whether to do postcards or letters. I think with any type of marketing, it's really the frequency and how many people you're hitting on a month to month basis. So um, a lot of people spend a ton of time like trying to get their letter perfect or their their post postcard perfect, but it's really like how many people are you hitting? Yeah. Um, and so what is a reasonable monthly marketing budget for you? I mean, I could probably do 2000 a month, but I'm just trying to not. You want to get your system right before you start spending too much money which is yeah. the right thing to do. You don't ever want to scale up a marketing campaign until you know that you've got your systems down. So um, are you willing to share with us what you made on those two wholesale deals that you did so far? Um, total 5,500. 5,500 between two deals? Yeah. And what was the breakdown for each one? The one was, um, the one was uh, like 4,250. Mm-hmm. And the other one was like twelve fifty. Okay. For those of you who are on the line right now that are watching, um, if you have any questions uh, for me or for Donna as we're going through, just type them into the comment section, and you know we can we can hit on anything uh, that we're talking about. But so the one that you made twelve fifty on, or basically a thousand dollars on, what were the numbers on that? Like, what were the numbers for the rehabber? Um, that one, I actually, I think I honestly, I kind of got screwed over on that one, to be honest with you. (laughs) Well, you Uh, know, I will will tell you this, right? As somebody who's fixing and flipping a property, and I do about a hundred of these a year in the Boston market, paying somebody a thousand or $1,200 or even $1,500 for a deal, either that deal really isn't that good, which I'm, I'm doubting because if the, the person was willing to pay you something, they have to have felt that the deal was worth, worth something. So to me, like the minimum, I mean, the bare minimum you should be making on a wholesale deal is about $5,000. And that's on a bad deal because the difference between somebody paying you a thousand and $5,000 on a deal is effectively nothing on a flip. Um, so tell me about why you think, you know, you got screwed and let's talk about how we can avoid that happening in the future. Well, it was, I was fairly new. Um, I was, I was actually at the airport, uh, flying up to Canada to watch my sons play, um, junior hockey. And so I had, um, I had a guy call me. And so I had met a wholesaler probably like within a week or two before I was leaving town. So I called him and I said, I have this lead. I'm leaving to Canada for two weeks. And so he ended up, they ended up making 7,000 on it, but I only got 1250. So that's why I say he didn't share it with me. He told me, I talked to one wholesaler here in Kansas city and I told him I had it and he told me he wouldn't even give me a referral fee for it. So I said, well, then I'm not going to give you the lead. So then I called someone else that I had met and gave it to him, but he only ended up giving me 1250. But so, they made seven thousand on it. Wait, so somebody wholesaled your wholesale deal? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I think this is kind of, you know, lesson learned on that one. Um yep. so in this market, you know, where we're sitting June 2017, it's really, really easy to wholesale a good deal. And 
all there's there's two places that you want to go. Let's say that you moved to Kansas City. Uh, you know, you just came from Kansas City yesterday. Let's talk about how you would find the best investors in your area. Um, the first place that I would recommend going are local auctions. Have you ever been to any local auctions in your marketplace? No, I've not. Okay. So um, now, do you know in your marketplace whether or not a local auction takes place outside of the property or at a courthouse? Because market to market is a little bit different. Do you it's know? It's courthouse. It's courthouse. It's courthouse. Yeah. Okay. So that actually makes it a little bit easier. <clears throat> in Boston, the way that they do it is that you actually have to go outside of the physical property. So when when we're going to either bid on a property or to meet another investor, um, there's there's a more limited number of people because they're going for one individual property as opposed to, you know, they're just going to one after the other, after the other, after the other. So what you're going to want to do, especially if you're focused on wholesaling, is you're going to want to go to those auctions and hand out your business card and talk to people, especially after you've gotten a deal. So let's just say that hindsight being 2020, you had this deal that you made 1,200 on or whatever that number was. I would have recommended that you, you would go to the courthouse and go with the flyer and actually hand it out and say, look, who's interested in buying this deal? And I can pretty much guarantee you right then and there, you would have been able to find a buyer because people, uh, investors who go to auctions are willing to put up non-refundable money, right? So a lot of times they're bidding on houses that they've never been inside. So you're, you're typically finding the most active and aggressive investors in your market and the people who are mo most likely going to be willing to buy deals. The other thing about wholesaling is you never want to just have to bring your deal to one person. Now, you know, the more competition there is on anything, the, the, the more you're going to make. I'm not saying that you could have made 10000 on this deal. You might have only been able to make the 7500 or whatever it is. But when you go to only one person, it limits the amount of money that you could possibly make. So that would be the first place I would go. The second place I would go um, would be just to Google search, sell my house fast, Kansas City, and look at the very top because the very top of every Google search is going to show who's paying for ads. And so just like the people at the auction, anyone who's paying for ads on Google is very serious. They're definitely not somebody who can't close cash on a property. So between those two things and those two things you could do within a week, um, you could get a list of probably 10 or 15 of the best cash buyers in your market. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So anyone on the call, if um, if some of that doesn't make sense or if you have further questions on how to wholesale a deal, let me know. But those are the two easiest ways. And what you're going to find over the course of time is that you're going to develop relationships with just two or three really good investors. And that's all you need. So, for example, in Boston, if somebody has a deal that they want to wholesale, all they need to do is call me. And within an hour, yeah, I mean, even sooner than that, within 10 minutes, I can basically let them know, is this something I'm interested in and roughly what I can pay? On the second yeah. deal where you made a little bit more, how did you go about doing that? How is your process a little bit different? Um, well, it was, it was, you know, the true process. Um, it was an inherited house. Mm -hmm. uh, the parents had passed away. And um, got it under contract, uh, got it 
I advertised it um, through my Facebook groups and like Craigslist and mm-hmm. and then got a buyer. Um, and how did I mean, you, yeah, that one. How did you determine on that one how much you should have been making? Um, I just kind of went through my comps and I just tried to price it to, to sell it, honestly. So I think I could have maybe made more, but, um, I, it was, you know, really just the first one. So that's where I went with it. Okay. So it's really, um, again, it's definitely important that you monetize these leads as best you can, because, you know, the difference between you making, 1500 versus 5,000 versus 10,000 is the name of the game. Um, I actually have a quote above me. Let me see if I can, I don't know if I can, can you see that or is it backwards? It says, unfortunately, the business that can spend the most to acquire a customer wins. Is that what it says? Ultimately, the business that can spend the most to acquire a customer wins. And what that means is that if I'm in the Kansas City market, and you can only make 5,000 wholesaling a deal, but I can make 15,000, that means I can outspend you, okay? So I can outspend you two, three, four to one, and you're not gonna be able to compete with me. So uh-huh. it's, it's so important that you maximize every deal so that you can actually spend more on marketing. And so um, the more that you spend, if, if you're doing it right, if you're, mo- if you're monetizing the leads properly, what you're gonna find is that for every dollar you spend, you're going to get two, three, four dollars in return, which once you get into that stage, you basically have an unlimited marketing budget. Let's talk about another way to monetize leads that you may or may not have thought of. What percentage of the the appointments or people that you've talked to do you feel like are retail sales and not really investment sales? I would say probably a good 50 to 60 percent want to do more retail and what are you doing with those leads? Um, I have passed them to an agent that I know here. Okay. And what is your benefit for that? Um, hoping that she follows up, but I haven't heard anything. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I've been doing. Why don't you have your real estate license? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. When you start spending money to, to generate motivated seller leads, what you're going to find, I'm actually even surprised, to be honest with you, that half of the people want retail because especially in this market, um, a lot of people are going to want f- close to, to full retail value for their property. And so if you don't have, again, going back to the quote right behind me, if you don't have a way to make money on those leads, somebody like me who does is going to be able to outspend you. Yeah. So um, what we do in our market is, so I have a real estate brokerage. I have about 150 um, real estate agents that are on my team. And so we monetize every single lead that comes through. I'm not saying we make we actually make money on every single lead, but we have a way to make money on every single lead. And so when we go out to a homeowner, the first thing we're looking to determine is, is this a retail sale or is this an investment sale? And for every homeowner, there can be different reasons as to why they want to sell to an investor versus why they might want to sell to a, um, you know, more retail. And we actually consult with them and we try to help them determine, 
what makes the most amount of sense. Because we know at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we want to buy a discounted property. It's all about what makes the most sense for that person. And if we're the ones that can help them determine what makes the most sense for them, they're going to work with us regardless of whether or not they want to sell to an investor or whether they want to list their home. So you definitely need to find a way to monetize those leads. How how hard is it for you to get your real estate license in, in, in your market? Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincamerancoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. Oh, I don't think it would be hard. No, and most markets it's not. Yeah. The other thing is, let's just say that you do a flip. Who would list that property for you? True. Yeah. Right. So you're going to be leaving money on the table there. So there's all these, you know, again, obviously you're newer and I'm absolutely, believe me, I'm not, um, I'm not saying you're doing things the wrong way. I'm just trying to give you ideas as to how you can kind of make more off of what you're spending because it, what, what will happen is if you're not monetizing everything um, that you're doing, like you might spend $5,000 and only make 6000 And then if that happens and that continues to happen over and over and over again, you're going to be like, oh man, is this even worth it? I mean, you know, and, and you're going to get frustrated and then you're going to say, oh, you know, like I, I'm going to do, you know, something else. So um, the yeah. more that you can kind of get, you know, every bang, you know, dollar um, bang for your buck in the beginning, the better. Um, so, True. so you, um, I'm trying to think of, of what else we haven't hit on. What, what questions do you have for me? Um, I guess my, my one question would be is, is what would your recommendations be if a person did want, you know, if a person came across a deal that, um, you saw that there was potential, like I had a deal that, um, hated to see it fall through, but, um, had it, had it under contract, had a buyer in place, but then the, the man is in his eighties and he didn't tell me about a second mortgage. So when we ran the title search, found out there was a second mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, still yet, there was still about, I would say about 50000 with after ARV. Uh, that would be there for potential for this person. But as far as like doing it at a wholesale or investor side, it's not leaving a lot of room where people would feel that there's a lot of leverage left. So, I mean, I've even thought to myself, well, you know, what if I went in and bought it? Um, you know, paid it, paid off his loan, gave him a few thousand dollars, you know, to mail or move and stuff. Um, and then went in and, and put the money into it and still made 10 or 20. Um, I, I mean, how, well, how do You're you. You're talking about doing a fix and flip to make 10 or 20. Yeah. Is that good That's or not? Horrible. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. And the problem is it's not, it's not about your time or your money. It's, it's more the risk factor to it. Right. So like if you if you go into a real estate, if you go into a flipping deal hoping to make 10 or 20 and then the market starts to turn, you could lose 10 or 20 easily. And we are we're at a point in the market cycle right now where you want to be really cautious because we're you know, you don't you never know when the market's going to start changing. Yeah. But what we do know is we're getting high again. 
Yeah. And so when you, when you start to get like, if you were talking about making 10 or 20, three or four years ago, I still wouldn't have recommended doing it, but I would have said, there's not really risk. I mean, if anything, you might get some appreciation on it and that 10 or 20 might turn into 30 or 40. But right now there's a greater risk that the opposite will happen. Yeah. So when you're talking about doing a fix and flip in any market, um, you're going to want to make at a minimum about $30,000. But do you use a formula to determine what to calculate on the the um, the properties? Because I can talk a little bit about that too, if you're not. Well, no, I, I don't have a formula. I had, we had a GC come out. So we kind of had a basic idea of what it'd be looking at as far as repairs. So how are you determining on your wholesale deals, what to offer? Like walk me through kind of, when you go out and you meet with a seller, how you're determining what you think makes sense to pay? Um, well, I do my comps and do um, time 70%. Yep. Of, and then minus your repairs and minus your whatever you're hoping to make. And that's where my price comes in at. Okay. So you're taking 70% of the after repair value minus repairs. And that's the number that you offer or you offer a little bit less? Well, minus my fee, then 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 that's where I would usually come in a little bit less just so we maybe try to have some room for negotiations. But I've also lost deals because of that. Yep. So two things on that. First of all, you're using the right formula. You're doing it the right way. And what you're seeing in your market is just like every market across the country. There are people who are willing to pay above that. So the market and this is another reason why when you're wholesaling a deal, you really are holding all the cards so for you to make, you know, even $5,000 on a wholesale is really too little because the, most investors right now are willing to pay above that 70% number. So that's just something that you need to, to keep in mind when you are thinking about wholesaling a deal. There are people that are willing to overpay. Um, <clears throat> the other thing you always want to look at is, are your comps right? Because when I first started, one of the mistakes I made is I was just... I, and I'm a, you know, you don't know anything about me, but I'm an accountant by, I'm by trade. So I'm a, I'm a CPA and I'm super conservative, you know, nervous type person. So when I first started, I was just really, really undervaluing the ARV. So I think um, what you want to do on the two deals that you already wholesaled, you want to make sure you figure out what those sold for and then what that compared to what you think they were going to sell for. Because it's, it, it is possible that you are undervaluing the ARV. And if you're undervaluing the ARV, it's not a problem in terms of if you get that offer accepted. But in a competitive situation, you just might be you know, way too low. And if you're way too low, you're going to have a difficult time getting any offers accepted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, as I said, that's already happened to me a couple times this this summer. I've uh, had a couple that I mean, I know we're going to be deals, and someone else came in and paid more. Um, when you were when you were out face to face with the seller, how did you leave it with them? Did you tell them, "Here's my offer. Get back to me a week later," or did you say, "I need an offer tomorrow"? How did you kind of negotiate with them? Uh, um. Uh, well, like the one guy, uh, met with him. Uh, I got my offer put together. I contacted him. He, I offered 48. He wanted 50. I did go up to 50. I sent him the mm -hmm. contract and then he never signed it. 
And then I, okay. I um, let me start. Let me stop you there. Um, so you were negotiating, not face to face. I did go out there to see the property and view the property, and then now, being on the phone, did he tell you like if you can do fifty, it's yours? Okay, so he here's did, yeah. So here's what I would have done. I would have said. I'm not sure. Now, if you knew that you could do 50, I would say, I'm not sure if I can do 50. Can I come out there again? I'm, I'm free right now. Can I come out there and take another look at it and see if I can do 50? And then I would have went out there with the contract and got him to sign right then and there. Um, I'm not saying that this would have 100% worked. Yeah. But the problem is, is that when you do your negotiating and it's not face-to-face, -face, you're allowing that person to then shop your offer. And you really can't allow in this mm -hmm. market a, a seller to shop your offer because if you do, then if they are shopping it to somebody else, there's the room for them to then go back. Oh yeah, somebody said 50, can you do 51? And you'd be surprised at how many deals are won and lost over an insignificant number, like a thousand dollars. And you're like, oh my God, if I just knew I had to pay another thousand, um, you know, I would have done it. But um if you're competing with somebody like me that knows I have to do this, then I'm going to run right back out there and try to renegotiate with that person face to face and, you know, tell them, look, you know, you made me come out here. I, we get it. We got to either get a yes or a no. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with a no, but I can't take a maybe. So you would not recommend um, emailing offers. Oh man, no way. I mean, especially if you know that you that you feel that there's a good chance I already had a buyer for that house like I mean it was already sold mm. how much would and you have made? that's what you know was really really frustrating how much would you have made I would have made that? six six thousand okay yeah so um I mean look I'm not saying the way that I'm talking about doing it I I cannot absolutely not guarantee that that it would have worked but I can tell you, you would have had it. No, I understand your thing. Yeah, but you would have had it. No, I, I mean, like I say, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've made tons of mistakes so far. Yep. Um, just due to not knowing really the the correct techniques and processes, and um, and yeah, there's there's another deal I lost. I offered twenty five to her. She, I contacted her the next day. She said no. Someone offered twenty eight. You know, I mean, it was just like really, yeah. you know, just that close, but still too far away. Yeah. So one strategy that I would definitely recommend using is when you get them face to face the first time, you know, I would say, look, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look through the house um, based on the, the condition and, you know, what I feel the work is required. I'm going to be able to make you an offer. Um, I can only buy it you know, maybe a house a week, maybe a house every couple of weeks. I can't buy everything. So um, I do a lot of these appointments. And so what I like to do, if it's okay with you, is let's come to a determination whether or not you're going to accept or reject the offer today. And again, use, I'm okay with the no. I'm totally fine with the no. I just can't take a maybe because after I leave here, I'm going to go visit somebody else's house. And I can't have 10 maybes lined up because I can't honor 10 maybes. If 10 people say to me, yes, I'll take your offer all on the same day, well, now I have to determine who, who I'm going to honor and who I can't. 90% of the time, a seller will say, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
And I, and I would just say, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just fair to both of us so that we know one way or the other. And if it's a no, it's no big deal. We can leave here as friends. And um, again, this, this is not a foolproof method because you'll always get people who will say, well, you know, I have this cousin in California who's part of making the decision and I just can't do it. But, but you will get a bunch of people who will say, yes, that's fine. I respect that. And, um, you know, for sure, I'm, I'm willing to, to accept or not accept an offer right then and there. Okay. Who, who are you kind of like, when you started getting into the business, what, what are you, what are you following? Like, are there books you're reading, webinars you're jumping on? Like whose information are you consuming right now? Um, I had actually, um, signed up with Kent Clothier, mm-hmm. um, for his training, which was pretty much all modules. So that's kind of how I, the process I've done. What is the name of the training? Did I lose you? No. What is the name of the training? Um, real estate, uh, Real real estate worldwide, I think, is what his system is. It's uh, Kent Clothier. Oh yeah, no, I I know, I know um, Kent Clothier's a lot. I, I've I've done a lot of his training. I'm just not familiar with a particular one. That's why I'm asking. So he's um, got- he just has he has a smart academy that you went through and kind of learned the language and the techniques and things to that nature. Okay. Yeah. So his, um, his stuff is, I found it to be really good. Um, you know, I think like there's a lot of different, um, you know, modules like that, that are not live. Like you can't really like interact and there's, there's a certain, you know, part of it that's good. And then there's a certain part of it that's tough because you can't get the one-on-one quick questions. I wouldn't recommend it. No. Okay. Yeah. I, I, it's, been a disappointment for myself a lot of money spent and you can't speak to someone yeah i think that's yeah. i think that's the biggest thing that people struggle with early on is that you need quick answers yeah and you can't get them and then what ends up happening is you end up making mistakes because you can't get those answers so um but you absolutely know, having said that um i'm sure some of the training in there is valuable even if you haven't gotten your your money's worth per se. Is there, is there anyone else that you're, that you're studying or, you know, trying to emulate right now? No, no. So no, I've tried to reach out to a couple of mentors, you know, to see about having some mentorship uh, with people local in the Kansas city area. Everybody wants to charge you, you know, I had one guy wanting to charge me $500 an hour, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, um, it's just been hard to find anyone who's actually wanting to, to share knowledge and guidance without costing the small fortunes. Um, uh, I'm not saying I'm looking for something for free, but I mean, I, I hope if I can ever get to a value, a place where I can be valuable for someone, uh, that's not the technique I'm going to use for sure. Yeah. So what we've done is um, so we've kind of, put out a partnership program. And the way that we do it is we actually work with people and we partner with people on deals. So we basically take like a small success fee on every transaction that we do when we work with somebody. And 
that's the model that I like, although I will say I think the other model ends up being more profitable. And I'll tell you why I believe that the other model is why people do it is because there's a lot of like you're taking action right now. Right. So you're actually doing the marketing. Um, you're out meeting with people. You're making offers. You've done deals. Um, a lot of people will go to a three day seminar and then they won't do anything. Um, they they literally they they won't spend money on marketing. They won't market. They won't put up the banding signs. They won't do it. And so I think from a, a business perspective, um, there's a lot more money to be made with promising somebody that you can make a ton on a course and not basing it on a profit than um, than the way I'm doing it, which is basically like we only make money if if you make money. Um, but the the difference, yeah. the reason I'm doing it the way I'm doing it is because. I don't have the ability to personally work with a hundred different people. So um, we basically, you know, actually figure out whether or not we think the person is going to take action and then we make a determination whether or not it makes sense to work with them. But yeah, it's, um, sure. it's a weird industry because the people who are really successful in your local market, most of them probably don't want to be a mentor period because they're making a lot of money doing the business. And then yeah. there, there are those people. And then there's this other segment of people who just basically provide mentor services. Kent Clothier being one of them. Again, um, I, I found his content to be pretty valuable, but you know, there are differing opinions on um, those different types of models. And they're typically not cheap. Like most of those types of programs are 20, 30, $40,000. I've started to work with people who have already spent $40,000. And I think the biggest injustice there is that that $40,000 should have been spent on marketing. And even if they just spent the money on marketing and didn't know anything else, they would have learned a lot more than basically going through like a bunch of modules. But that's just kind of my take on it. So um, what are the we questions? Live we, learn. We, le- we live and <laughs> learn from our mistakes. Yeah, for sure. I, I will say this um, though. I, I've done a, I've done a bunch of the coaching from all different people and I've never, I've never left, even if I've spent a lot, I've never left feeling like I didn't get my money's worth um, in some way, shape or form. But what, what other questions do you have for me on, on any of this stuff? Um. I, I mean, yeah, I guess what would your recommendation, I, I guess my first question would be, I, do you feel that a person always has to be a wholesaler first to continue to try to grow this business? And then if you do want to go into doing fix and flips or rentals, uh, are, do you always feel it should be a foundation of just always having to do the wholesaling? I don't. So I think wholesaling in general is actually harder than fixing and flipping because not only do you have to get a great deal, you actually have to get it even cheaper so that you can then resell it to somebody else and make money. The negative with wholesaling, besides what I just mentioned, is that the profit margins are smaller. So the ideal situation for somebody that's new, if they have the capital, because most of the time when people are just wholesaling, it's because they don't have the capital to close on a deal. But for me, the ideal situation, if you have the capital, is to find one of these really good deals that the property's in like a six or seven or eight out of 10 condition. And then you do a very, very minimal renovation and then put it back on the market. So I think if you did that in the Kansas City market, you should make a minimum of $30,000. And what you're going to find, most people think when they're 
marketing to motivated sellers that the reason that people sell is because they're behind on their mortgage or something crazy has happened. But at least half of the sellers that sell that sell to us directly um, are actually people that just have lived in the property for a long time and they don't really want to do all the work required to list it. So they come to us and they say, you know what? I know I'm going to take a little bit less, but I don't want to go through inspections and I don't want to go, I don't want to have my house available for the public to walk through. And they're just kind of ready to, to move on to the next stage of their life, which is why the age variable is so important when you're talking about marketing, because you know, I'm 34 years old. A 34-year-old guy is never going to say, oh, you know, I'm too tired to, you know, paint my house and then put it back on the market. But somebody who's, you know, 55 or 60 might say, you know what, I have more to do in my life right now. I have more important things to get to than squeezing in an extra 10 or 15,000 out of the sale of my house. So I, I, what I wouldn't do if I were you, if you're thinking about doing a fix and flip, is I wouldn't do a gut renovation. Because not that you will make more money on those type of deals, but what you don't want to do on your first project is have that kind of overtake your life. Because there's a lot more potential mistakes that can be made when you're talking about a big job, especially if you haven't done one before. So what I would look for is that deal where you're, you've got the property that's at six or seven or eight out of 10 condition and you can close on it and you can just do something very minor and then put it back on the market. And I would be conservative with that. And then what that's going to allow you to do again is going to pump more marketing money back into your deals because going back to that quote again, you're going to be maximizing your profit more than the person who, who's just wholesaling and who's making five or 10,000. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Do you have a recommendation as far as how a person goes about learning the fix and flip uh, systems and process. You're talking about the management of, of a project, right? Well, that, I mean, like I'm looking at a house, um, this weekend and I think it could be a pretty good option if I could get it for the right price. Mm -hmm. I don't know what really condition the house is in, but I really considered, you know, maybe this one could be my first one, but I don't know all of the determination factors. Um, I mean, yeah, I just don't know anything about that whole, the whole thing as far as fixing and flipping. I've mostly just learned about the wholesaling side. But when you say fixing and flipping, you're talking strictly about actually renovating the property, right? Yeah. Yeah. So again, what I would do is I would make sure that you, for your first one, it's one that's minor. even buy one that's in good enough condition that you could literally just resell it. So gotcha. what you're looking for in, in that case is something where you go in there and you're like, well, this property could be resold as is, but if I just painted it and if I just put new carpets in and that's it, then it's going to get me a little bit more money. So it needs to be the type of deal I'm talking about has to be one that someone could actually move into right out of the, right off the, off the bat. Okay. I understand. Gotcha. Yeah. So if you, and honestly, in this market, some of those can be great deals because the market's so hot right now and people, there, there's such a need for inventory on the market 
we do that a lot of times, even though we have the ability to knock down walls and, you know, do every single thing you can think of under the sun for renovation. Sometimes we actually make more money just doing the basics because right now people, the average buyer is kind of getting tapped out in terms of prices. So a lot of times the market right now is saying to us that they would rather a $250,000 house that's in a seven out of 10 condition than a $275,000 house that's in a 10 out of 10 condition because people are getting kind of tapped out maybe at the 250 range and they can't, there's such few yeah. buyers to go up. So, um, so, so I would definitely um, consider flipping if I were you, because you're just going to get a bigger ROI and it's going to be easier to, you know, put that property under contract, but just make it a really, really simple one on your first deal. Do you have a recommendation as far as any books or anything to read that would be helpful with that or just? Well, if you're, if you're buying the type of property that I'm talking about, you know, all you're going to be doing is hiring somebody to paint or hiring somebody to put carpets down. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there are, like, if you're talking about like following, you know, procedures as, as how to do, you know, a full renovation, a full renovation, um, I can definitely provide you some resources offline for sure. Um, but the reality of that is, is that it's a trial and error process. And so that's why you don't want to do a big project right out of the gate because, yeah. because what you're going to see, just let's say that you knew how to do everything, just building up contracting crews takes some time because when you, let's say that you hire your first, you know, electrician, there's a 50, 50 chance that they're going to be bad. And I don't mean, you know, bad work, something bad is going to happen. So what it is, is it's a process of building out your team. So what we have now, because we've been doing this for 10 years, is that we've got a bunch of good people. But even though we have a lot of good systems built up, there's always people who are leaving. So for example, we had a really good GC who was managing about five projects at a time for us. And he decided one day he woke up, he said, well, why are you guys making all the money and, and flipping and, and I'm you know doing the work? And so he decided he wanted to start flipping. So even when you do have these good systems in place, people come, people go. So that's why you want to kind of ease your way into it. And you want to, okay, the first thing you're going to find is, um, you know, one good painter, you know, one good floor guy, and that's it. And then the next project you do, maybe you expand and say, okay, there's a little bit of electrical needed or there's roof needed. And you're going to have to go through people. You're going to have to go through bad people to get good people. Um, and even though like I don't manage the projects myself, my partner manages all of them, but we still, you know, we'll hire somebody and we think they're going to be the greatest thing in the world. And then they're not. So the key is to not have to hire 20 people and only 10 of them work out. The key is to add like one at a time. And then all of a sudden you've got 20 people that you can rely on. And then at that point you can do bigger projects. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. Cool. What else? I I don't know. I think that's it at this point, Tommy. I appreciate it. You've been awesome. Yeah, no problem. So um, for those of you, you know, if you're on the line right now and you do want to do one of these sessions with me, um, I'm trying to do about one of these a day um, just to kind of have some fun and talk to some people in other markets. So if you do want to jump on one of these calls, I'm going to put in the URL right now to set up a ton. 
And um, Donna, I'm going to send you some stuff offline and, um, you know, we can, we can go from there and definitely you're in a good market. That's the good news. Oh, you, one other question that you didn't, I didn't hit on. You asked me about rentals. So I think um, rentals are something that you just want to pick up when the opportunity arises. You are lucky because you're in a market where you can still buy rentals and they, they will still cash flow. Unfortunately, I'm not. I'm in a market where the, the the properties, even the ones, the multifamilies don't cash flow. So unfortunately, I'm in a position where I actually have to wait for the market to come down to start stock to continue to buy more multifamilies. But for you, what I would do is um, I would I would focus on the wholesaling and the fixing and flipping. And then when you identify a great opportunity, I would take advantage of it. I wouldn't push it, but I would wait. And if you see one where you're like, wow, this is a no brainer rental, that's one that I would, I would work on. And then what you want to do on the rental so that you're not kind of, you know, using up all your capital is if you can get it discounted and then you can do a little bit of renovation and then you can get it fully rented, then you can refinance it back out and get all of your money back out. And again, you're very lucky because you're in one of the, you know, maybe about 20 to 30% of the markets across the country still cash flow. The rest don't. So um, you're kind of lucky that yeah. you can still, you know, accumulate rentals in this particular market. Right. Right. No, absolutely. No, I agree with that 100%. Cool. So um, you've got me on Facebook. Let me know what else you need. And um, it was it was nice talking to you. Thanks, Tommy. I appreciate it very much. Have an awesome day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor, and especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.